This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Our hot question for Monday is pretty straight up, and a lot of us have been dinged more than once with a ticket for not paying attention to the meter. Should pay parking at BC hospitals be abolished? A simple yes or no will do. Should pay parking at BC hospitals be abolished? Uh, It's time to take a look at a subject that is uh, turned into our question of the day, one that more than a few British Columbians find, shall we say, annoying to be kind and generous on a Monday morning. Bloody irritating. That's getting closer. We're talking about pay parking at BC hospitals. There's an interesting article in today's Vancouver Sun, uh, which talks about which hospitals, uh, well, issue the most tickets. Uh, Surrey Memorial apparently leads the pack, followed fairly closely by Abbotsford, Richmond next, Royal Columbian, uh, and rounding out the top five is Langley Memorial. Vancouver General, interestingly, is uh, way down the list of local hospitals in this corner of of the province with... uh, Ridge Meadows ahead of us, Peace Arch right behind us in White Rock. So again, Vancouver General, the one, the biggest, certainly one of the biggest, uh, and St. Paul's also not the largest in terms of ticket issuing. The whole matter, though, of ticket issuing is more than a little irritating to uh, many British Columbians, including some who have organized a group called HospitalPayParking.ca. That's their website, HospitalPayParking.ca. And right there on the front page, of the website, they say patient care is not dependent on pay parking. Here to tell us more is John Buss from Hospital Pay Parking, the group. Hi, John. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for joining us today. What? Uh, tell us a little, give us a little history about your group, John. How long have you been around? And uh, um, obviously, we know why it's formed. You're upset about paying for uh, hospital parking. Give, give us some background on your group. Well, we started about uh, two years ago, and uh, there was an issue that had been lingering for a long time. People complaining about paying for parking hospitals, a lot of people showing, um, you know, a lot of hardship, additional stress, not really needed at the time when you're uh, attending a hospital. So I was looking at the um, the issue thinking there's got to be someone that's kind of taking the lead and organizing some kind of resistance to this, some kind of better way. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, there had it was just ranting and raving. It was uh, a few TV show specials on the issue, but no one or no group had really taken the lead in, in trying to find a better way forward. So I put together the website, and uh, we've got a small number of volunteers that, uh, you know, we, we, we discuss some of the issues. We've got a Facebook page, which is great to, to discuss, uh, you know, some options, some ways of uh, making suggestions to better it. We're looking for reformed um, hospital parking, not the continuation of the current exploitative hospital pay parking system your property your tax dollars their profits another one of these little revolving uh, headlines that comes up and disappears on your website uh so who's making the profits well there's two revenue streams that come in from hospital pay parking the first is of course the money you put into the meter um that goes all of it to the health authorities which is you know fantastic however our health authorities pay these private companies, such as Robbins Parking on the island, Impark for the rest of the province, to provide that service. And we released these numbers uh, about a year ago. We uh, had the contracts made public that showed uh, several million dollars being paid every year to these companies just to set up shop at our hospitals and, and rob people when they're at their lowest, at their sickest. So we also 
wanted to find more about the more elusive stream of revenue, the second revenue stream, and that is the violation revenue. When you sometimes uh, go and you have maybe other priorities, going to a hospital, no kidding, popping the meter up, yeah, right, and you get a parking ticket, and there's you know eighty bucks or or whatever it is on the uh, on the face value of that ticket. So we never had any access to this in Canadian history. We did an FOI request some time ago, and we finally got our numbers. We released interior and island health figures, and uh, our FOI did go to the folks of the Vancouver Sun for some still unexplained reason, um, but they have received the Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health figures. Right. So that's the secondary issue. And they're very interesting because they show uh, not just uh, some of the um, stats on how many parking tickets were issued and how many were cancelled and how many outstanding, but we do know what the uh, value is on a ticket that's given out, and so we can kind of come up with some some estimates for the dollars collected, which is interesting on its own, but what was really shocking was the non-compliance rate on paying these parking tickets. Oh, so uh, so they wrote a stack of tickets, only a, a, a fraction of which were ever paid. Three quarters of all parking tickets at Fraser Health are never paid. 70% at Coastal Health never paid. 64% at Island Health are never paid. And uh, at Interior Health, 60% are not paid. So we, we know there's very little incentive to pay in the first place. We've said, if you've got a hospital stay, why pay? Unless you want to make a charitable donation to the health authority, which is very noble, Go ahead and pay the meter, John. Uh, do but, do uh, do uh, when these paid tickets are not collected? Uh, do the do the ticket issuers or their representatives, these companies that make millions for, as you say, setting up shop mm-hmm. and running the the parking show? Do mm-hmm. they do they put those unpaid tickets out to collection, John, or do they just write them off? My understanding is that they do. However, it's simply an invoice. These are not tickets. These are not legal violation tickets. They're invoices. And of course, any business owner um, that had, has had to collect on an unpaid invoice, so there's a course of action. And that often leads to small claims court if a few phone calls don't work. And that's not really feasible when you're dealing with, um, you know, we're dealing with uh, tens of thousands of unpaid parking tickets. Right. So the other thing to consider is that where does the revenue stream go, the second revenue stream, the violation of the ticket collecting um, collection money? Which is, a lot, is all, more, a lot more dollar value, even though a lot, not all of them are paid. When you do pay a ticket, you're paying a lot more than your original parking fee certainly correct. would have been, right? Correct. And, and of course, that money is retained 100% by the parking lot management company uh-huh. in Park and Robbins Parking. So that's something that we should all be aware of. It's not going to your local hospital. Interesting stuff, because I think one of the reasons most of us grudgingly, and we sometimes even cuss a little bit while we're trying to fumbling for the right coins to put in the meter, et cetera, most of us are those of us who do pay, do so because we're supposed to. And we got, we got, as you say, when you're going to the hospital, you're not there to have a good time. You're there because you're sick or you're going to be to visit someone who is to make their life a little brighter. And you're right. If you go in there and you emerge and, and you know, you're, if it's your turn, finally, uh, and your parking meter expires, you're about to interrupt whatever. You've finally waited hours to be seen to. Uh, to I'm sorry, I got to go plug the meter. Not going to happen. But I suppose... Uh, now your uh, your group, John, must be feeling a little bit better because, as I understand it, your presence 
And this discussion that is ramping up in volume is now at the point where we've got an election in the offing where some members of government, as in the NDP, are actually petitioning their superiors in the cabinet to reconsider this whole pay parking thing in the first place. Yeah, well, certainly the NDP's resolution, the analyst's resolution to, to scrap uh, the, uh, the practice is, is fantastic. But one of the things we're concerned about is using this issue as an election sweetener in 2022. Uh-huh. Um, as the was the case the with the tolls on the bridges, yeah. exactly, exactly. And, the, and the medical insurance premiums, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's two, two years away. That's too long to wait. There are some very, in fact, there's one specific middle ground we have been suggesting, I've written to, uh, Mr. Dix on this a number of times to get us between where we are today and full reform at our hospital parking lots. And that is to implement two hour free parking at all BC hospitals that currently have hospital pay parking. Not all of them do. Um, and, and that would be so helpful to so many people that want to visit you know, within two hours. Very reasonable. Sure. People going for some testing. Very mm-hmm. reasonable. Um, it would, I mean, just people going there with a lot in their mind, having the first priority being your parking um, payment, that's got to go. You know, it, it has to be um, healthcare-centered, not not parking uh, payment-centered. So, I, I think if we have uh, a middle ground like two-hour free parking to get us to full reform, that'd be fantastic. And it's not happening. And Mr. Dix, the health minister, has mentioned this whole matter on several occasions recently. So you know the message is getting through, uh, and there is some chatter going on. But you know, I'm going back to your website for John for a second to use this line that I've already used before because I think this is one of the reasons so many of us pause and fumble for change and plug the blinking meters. Patient care is not dependent on pay parking and yet you're at the hospital you plug the meter you figure the hospital's going to get this money ultimately it's going to do some good somewhere and that's not typically the case yeah well that's been boilerplate for many years it's snow clearing it's lighting it's parking lot management you know these are all fine these are very reasonable um expenses uh for running a proper hospital we get that but there should be no marriage between income from pay parking and providing these services, paying these bills. I mean, there's all sorts of um, odd um, in, um, expenses that we would have in running a proper hospital. Um, why is it that we have to separate out these um, expenses in the parking lot and assign it to running a small business at the front end of healthcare? Ed, thanks for waiting. Good morning. Hi, uh, John. Love the idea. I think you're doing a hell of a job and looking after something that really does need some attention but it does beg the question and i've been there i've i've paid lots of money and you forget because you're with a, a loved one and you you paid for two hours right and you end up being there four hours sure. getting a ticket. but here's the question how will you stop local businesses from parking there people off the street from just parking there you're gonna have to have a way that can determine whether the person is there for a legitimate reason, hospital reason, how will you go after that? How will you look after that? That's a very good question. Excellent question. Um, In fact, that was on our our minds from day one. Um, On our website, we have a section that says our our plan, our ideas. And we state in very large, bold, typeface that we are not advocating for -for free-for-all parking at hospitals. And we know that's just going to be a disaster. And like I said, the uh, businesses locally uh, will have their customer base perhaps use them. It's just a, it's a nightmare. What we've suggested is to create an exclusive environment, uh, discriminate 
who can park on the limited number of hospital parking um, uh, spots. Right. And there's ways to do that. I mean, um, you know, LPR technology, it's, a, it's been around for a long time, license plate recognition scanning. Um, that's a way to ascertain which vehicles in the parking lot um, are related to people in the building. Um, City Hall at City of Surrey is a great example. They've got something where if you go to City Hall, you just uh, walk so, into the main doors, you type in your plate number, and they regularly scan the lot. If there's a match, it's, you're, you're good for right. two hours or whatever it is. So there's ways to do it using technology to ensure that it's not, uh, not uh, abused. Okay, by the way, Ed, uh, an excellent question and a really fair one. Uh, the short answer to it is on hospitalpayparking.ca. The solution isn't unrestricted free parking for all. Sorry, that's not smart either. Robin in Richmond, hello to you. Yes, hi, good morning. Um, So I was bit by a German shepherd on the foot a couple of years ago, and I'm profusely bleeding, and there was a bone sticking out of my foot, and I drove myself to the hospital to Royal Columbian. And, of course, I just kind of went into uh, emergency. I was there for about four hours. I came out. I had a ticket. I actually called the company, and uh, they asked me to provide pictures of my foot, which I did, and they canceled the ticket for me, but I think that this absolutely has to go. It's just, it's the last thing you, you're thinking of as you're bleeding yeah. and going into emergency. Uh, but I do like the attendance. They used to have attendance at Rich, uh, at Richmond Hospital, and I really like that. They were there 24-7, and, you know, when you had to go to emergency, you would get a, you know, you would get a ticket on your way in, and then you would pay him on your way out, and this may be a way to get around the two hours free parking uh, bring the attendants back, and when you go into emergency, you just use one of those, you know, when you clock into sure. work, one yeah. of those little stampers and come out, and, and then once the attendant sees that, you know, you've been only there for less than two hours, uh, and then this way you don't have to fumble for change. You can use your debit or credit to pay when yeah. you leave. Yeah, good point. And, and John, you've done a lot of homework on this. Uh, some comments on, on Richmond's. Uh, and Robin's talking, yeah. of course, about increasing the operating costs by bringing humans back into yeah. the equation. And you were talking about machines that read license plates, a much right. more efficient and cost-effective way of managing. But speak to Robin's uh, issue there. Well, we, we actually did um, a spotlight on that with our last release when the latest contract between PHSA, uh, Provincial Health Services, and Coastal Health and Fraser Health came out January the, uh, January the 1st, 2019. And it was very specifically addressed that um, the tenants are going away and guess your time and enter your license plate number into a machine is the way forward. Okay. And that's very clear. All right. Fair enough. Uh, one more here before we have to take the break. We're in Burnaby next with Leslie on the line. Hello. Oh, hi, dear. Hi, dear. I, uh, in December of 2017, I had to take my husband into Emerge, or he went into Emerge by ambulance, I should say. Uh-huh. And he was there for uh, 17 hours and 45 minutes and then became deceased. Uh, the hospital was very nice. They let me park in the Emerge parking there for roughly five hours. And then as morning came up, they asked me to move my car. Right. And I had to park the remainder of the time in the parking lot, which was a big deal. Well, and um, I hope they do something about that. That would be nice uh, uh, for other people so they wouldn't have to go through what I did. Well, I'm sorry to hear about that, and, and I'm glad you called, Leslie. Thank you very much for doing so. And again, uh, John, we've only got a couple of seconds left, but again, there are a lot, this affects a lot of people in different ways, not very many of them positive. Yeah, that's true. There's a lot of sad stories out there, and we would hope that people go to the website. Uh, it's an easy way to learn the facts, get in contact with your MLA and uh, 
write a uh, an email or a letter to that person, to your individuals representing your views in, uh, in Victoria. Thanks Thank for know. being with us today, John. We appreciate it. Hospitalpayparking.ca. Check it out. It's a big day of reckoning. Two eyes on the American news headlines today. Iowa and impeachment. Here to talk about both from the Global News Washington Bureau, correspondent Reggie Ciccini joining us. Reggie, thanks for being with us. Where do you want to start, with the president or in the Iowa caucuses? I'll, I'll let you lead on this one. I mean, both of them are equally important right now. Sure. I think we could probably start with Iowa only because it's uh, it's going to be lingering through the day and in towards the night tonight, whereas the impeachment articles, uh, that's going to pause in about a couple of hours and then take, take a break. So I would say we start in Iowa. Absolutely. Okay, so this is the Iowa caucus. It's their turn. They're always first in the parade to uh, uh, essentially take their pick of the Democratic field of candidates. It is, and it is historically a good marker to be able to figure out who may be the Democratic nominee by the time the conventions roll around later this year. The problem is this year... It's really hard to tell. Polls are uh, finding it difficult to be able to figure out who is going to be the front runner by the end of this. Bernie Sanders has been kind of picking up a lot of support. It would appear that the Democratic Party may have underestimated the Sanders campaign once again mm-hmm. this time around. He's picking up uh, some significant support here. And polls are also showing that Joe Biden could be one of the legs behind and, and possibly come second, third, maybe even fourth. So that's why there's some there's some instability in trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen by the end of the night. And we have. I haven't seen any any commanding lead taken by anyone. What about the press, the local press in Iowa, when you want to you know, go to one of these uh, state nomination processes, Reggie? You're always looking for the endorsement of the local uh, Des Moines Register and, and press uh, backing like that. And I'm not noticing any huge surge of support in any one direction. No, there wasn't. There has been some support for Bernie Sanders. There was also some support growing for Elizabeth Warren over the last couple of weeks. But what we usually see right around this time is the Des Moines, uh, the Des Moines Register comes out with their kind of big final push right. as to how this is going to lay out. But there, I guess, were some uh, polling inaccuracies, and there were some people that had complained that Mayor Buttigieg's name had been left out of some of the polling questions. So it was actually decided at the last minute to pull the polling out and not release any of that. So that's kind of leading to that cloud of confusion for people because they don't have that kind of uh, 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 packed mentality of saying, well, this is who you say we should go for. Maybe we should walk behind that person. Yeah, interesting. I don't know whether you watched much of the Super Bowl yesterday, Reggie, or not. I did. Unfortunately, we didn't get the American feed up here in Canada, and you know that story as well as the rest of us. But uh, if you were watching the American feed, you would think that the Iowa caucuses are long gone, and you were looking at a presidential race between Michael Bloomberg and Donald Pump, who's pumped a lot of money into those uh, ads during the Super Bowl, millions and millions of dollars, the Bloomberg factor. He's not been part of this uh, up until Iowa. Is he going to surprise? I mean, it's possible here. I mean, Michael Bloomberg is somebody who understands that he came to the party late and he's been facing criticism over the fact that he essentially bought his way into uh, the most recent uh, into the most recent uh, debate. He likely showing up into the next debate. And the only reason he's as far as he is right now is because he has a big financial backing. Sure. I think what uh, what what Michael Bloomberg is trying to say here is, look, I may not be the candidate of choice. I may not be the person standing on the stage in uh, in July to be able to accept the nomination. But what I'm going to 
to do in his eyes is take the money and spend it and ensure that whoever the candidate is is going to have that kind of financial backing behind him. I think he's just trying to kind of give a little bit of a lift to a Democratic Party who's been really suffering under a bit of infighting and an inability to create a platform outside of let's just beat Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting, of course, that you note the resurgence of support for Bernie Sanders, as was the case four years ago. Uh, A lot of very young uh, first time voters again enthralled with Bernie and his policies and uh, that sort of thing. Of course, Bernie would be a gift from God for Donald Trump because we we, up here in Canada, Bernie's a a social Democrat like the NDP. Uh, But in America, if you're a socialist, they see that and interpret that as a communist. And it'd be a tough, a tough fight, don't you think? It would be a tough fight, and I think that there is trying to, or at least Bernie Sanders is trying to, along with Elizabeth Warren, change that idea that just because we're socialist, it doesn't mean that we are some kind of, uh, you know, communist trying to control your day-to-day life. Right. They, they, they see socialism in the U.S. more towards Cuba than they do towards, uh, you know, how the Canadian model is, and I think that that's why this grassroots kind of buildup underneath Bernie Sanders four years ago is still resonating today, because obviously it didn't go anywhere under the Republican government that we're sitting with right now. And Democrats, particularly the moderate Democrats, are still fearful of shifting too far to the left, not kind of understanding that the Democratic base is very quickly becoming younger. There are more millennials voting this time around than there are going to be baby boomers voting this time around. Interesting. also a growing uh, minority throughout the United States that is starting to kind of take away some of that massive amount of white vote that used to be prevalent in elections past. And Democrats really need to start understanding that that is the base for them. And Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are really trying to take advantage of that. Same, too, with Mayor Buttigieg, simply by his age and his ability to kind of draw in a younger crowd. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's, uh, you know, you're in Washington, Reggie, and, and uh, up here uh, in home base for you at Global News headquarters in Toronto and across the country, not many Canadians are able to see anyone on the horizon that we think would stand even a snowball's chance of of going up against Donald Trump and making some kind of impact. You're at the scene of the crime, so to speak, in Washington, D.C. Do you see anybody that the rest of us can't? Well, I mean, look, this is this is a varied group of candidates, and we're still, you know, despite the fact that we're rounding out the Iowa caucuses today, we're still very far off from any kind of nomination process. True. We still have a number of debates to go through, and we still have all of the primaries to be able to get through. I think what we need to look for is what happens today. Who comes in first, second, and third? If it's a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg kind of thing, usually what happens is the people who are lingering behind at the end of the Iowa caucuses fall off the wagon sure. by the time we get to New Hampshire next week. If we see something like Bernie Sanders win today, it doesn't ultimately mean that Joe Biden is going to fail out. He has a strong following with the African-American community, and the South Carolina primary takes place towards the end of, uh, I believe, the end of this month. Right. Uh, and that is essentially going to be where Joe Biden is able to pick things up. So we still have a couple of months to be able to go through before we're able to say definitively this is who it could be whoever it is though is going to have a monumental challenge of trying to get around the trump base the trump surrogates and the president himself now you're in washington do you plan to cover the state of the union address in person tomorrow and if so do you expect a donald trump victory lap 
we I will be covering that tomorrow. And I, I, I he the president says that he is not going to try to get into impeachment. I think he would have liked this to have wrapped up last week. So he could take sure. a victory lap and say, sure, look, I've been exonerated. I've been vindicated. Now let's continue to move on. According to the president's people, he's going to make this very kind of warm and glowing and talk about legislative uh, uh, wins from the past, even though there might not be that many of them. He'll talk about USMCA. He'll talk about uh, security down towards the border and really use this as kind of a rallying cry to get the message out there that, well, the Democrats and the quote-unquote deep state are still going after him. Look at all the great things that I've done for the country. If he goes off course, if something happens in the next 24 hours and he decides that the prompter is not going to be his friend that night, Mm. this could be anybody's State of the Union or anybody's guess as to what happens at the State of the Union. And it could be like inauguration three years ago when he starts bringing this kind of fire and anger towards towards the American public. Interesting stuff. Now, is there any remote possibility at all, Reggie, that uh, the the mysterious John Bolton and his soon-to-be-released book and these teases that he's been releasing about the president knowing this, that, and the other thing because he was there, eyewitness-type stuff, is there any possibility Mr. Bolton will be heard from in this process at all? I don't think he's going to be heard of by the time or heard from by the time that, you know, the impeachment goes to the acquittal vote tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't hear from him. There are reports that the House is going to try to subpoena him to get information that won't do anything for impeachment, but it will put it on the record. And I think that could kind of bolster the Democrats' hands towards the end of the uh, election cycle by saying, look, here's the information we tried to gather for you. Here's the information that you now have from John Bolton that Republicans didn't want to hear from. Here's how you can take that with you when you head into the voting booth at the end of November. I think that just because the trial portion is wrapped up, just because the president may likely become acquitted, it doesn't mean the Democrats aren't going to continue to push information into their base to ensure that they can try to get as much support as they can by the end of the year. Yeah, just to wrap things up here, Reggie, and we're grateful for your time today, just the the protocols involved. I'm watching CNN at the moment, and one of the Democratic impeachment managers is presenting her portion of the case. That will continue through the balance of today and more closing arguments arguments rather tomorrow and is that it is then subject to a vote and it's one and done Essentially, yeah. So we're, we're kind of within the last two hours here of both sides being able to wrap up their final bits. And then senators will be able to speak just to get their voices on the record. Tomorrow, they will be able to speak as well, except it won't be considered impeachment trial. The chief justice won't be there. It's simply going to be just a matter of, of procedure that things happen. And then by Wednesday, the vote is likely to happen around 4 p.m. D.C. time. And then that's it. If the president's acquitted, impeachment goes away and back to kind of D.C. regular life under the realm of Donald Trump. And that's uh, and and uh, once the vote is taken uh, and and uh, the 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 tally has been uh, done and uh, the the results are announced it's over that's it does somebody hit a gap will the would the chief justice preside over that final vote or is he done already No the chief justice just walks away for tomorrow and then he comes back for that final vote he gavels down once that final you know yay or nay is given and this goes into the history books as you know that fourth or, or or what Americans are hoping could be the f- last impeachment to ever have to go through. And then that's the end. We read about it in the history books and we just move on uh, with the election cycle. And it'll almost be like impeachment never happens. I have a feeling, Reggie, the stuff that's going to be in the history books that we're going to read about all of this has yet to be written because there's a lot of information we just flat out have not been allowed to see. This president has taught us to expect the unexpected. Indeed. Reggie Ciccini at Global News Washington Bureau. Great to speak to you. You have a busy couple of days ahead. Enjoy.
There's Reggie Ciccini in Washington. Well, Mark Bonacoski is on the line from his home in Ottawa, Ontario. Mr. Bonacoski, longtime post-media columnist and a favorite writer of mine, uh, who has written recently uh, a column, in fact, over the weekend, entitled Contraband Cigarettes Fund Terrorism and Organized Crime. Mark, welcome back to CKNW. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Sterling. So tell us a little bit about uh, the the impact of, uh, you're talking about Ontario because that's your home province and that's where they've done an awful lot of research and homework on this topic. Tell us about the impact of contraband uh, economics on the economy. Well, first of all, to, to, to uh, listeners on the West Coast, Ontario is the epicenter of 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 illicit cigarette manufacturing. There's a number of uh, Mohawk reserves uh, in Ontario and in the uh, fringes of Montreal that pump out, and there's there's scores of them pumping out 10 million cigarettes, 10,000 cigarettes a minute. Um, and it's been told uh, the New York authorities, especially New York State, uh, claim that uh, that. Ontario is the is the lead, takes the lead on contraband cigarette manufacturing in North America. So it's a big deal here. But you know you you can't, and it does go and fund organized crime. And and there was a big bust in Toronto recently where they t- took down some amphetamines, cocaine, a whole bunch of it. You know some mafiosa types were arrested. In the, the third or fourth line, it was that all also seized were three million cigarettes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but it's as an afterthought. Part of the problem is the police in Ontario are scared crap out of themselves. They will not go on a reserve for any reason whatsoever. Uh, there is a reserve called Tankanega, halfway between Ottawa and Toronto, on the banks of, of the uh, Lake Ontario, that has uh, at least. 50 to 60 illegal pot dispensaries. Uh, you can go online at one of the pot dispensaries, and if you got $8,000, you can order a kilo of hashish, and it'll be delivered to your door by Canada Post. Mm-hmm. But uh, contraband tobacco has been used largely to fund other cr- criminal activities because it's... it's uh, Low risk, high returns, um, and if you get caught uh, with uh, contraband cigarettes, like a, a trailer load, uh, you may get a, a five thousand dollar fine. Never get jail. Right. Was it was as cheap, but they uh, compared to drug smuggling and gun smuggling and people smuggling. Uh, the the one I the, the column I cited. I mean, in, is the one about the, the big. Uh, uh, the raid in, on an Algerian gas plant a number of years ago, uh, where 800 hostages were taken, and before the uh, authorities were able to take back uh, the gas facility, I mean a massive gas facility, uh, 39 people had been executed. Mm. Uh, two of the uh, terrorists killed were uh, a couple of young lads from Canada uh, who uh, were Al-Qaeda supporters. So we got that kind of hook now, uh, but um, the, the leader of the group, known as the One-Eyed Sheik and Mr. Marlboro, uh, raised all his money 
through prolific involvement in cigarette smuggling. Interesting stuff. Now, Mark, you also quoted uh, uh, an article from the Ontario Tobacco Research Unit, which has been around for 25 or 30 years, yeah. uh, recently republishing an article from The Lancet, which is that very uh, high-tone British medical magazine. Uh, in this article in The Lancet said, if you just triple the retail price of cigarettes all over the world, smoking would be reduced by half in almost no time. And that kind of sets you off as well. Yeah, because you don't take it into, uh, uh, there's no thought about the contraband market. Right. And and, and it's huge. Uh, you go up into northern Ontario, uh, you know, north of uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, and, and, and that, those environs, 80% of the cigarettes being smaller contraband cigarettes. I mean, why would you... It is not brain science. If you live near an Ontario Reserve, why would you go into your convenience store and pay upwards of $35 or $130 for a carton of legally sold cigarettes right. when you go into the into the Reserve and buy the same number for about 35 bucks. So you're saving $100 every time you, you buy a carton of smokes. How is, how, how is it, or who is doing the tracking, Mark? Because you seem to be fairly comfortable uh, in the article uh, in uh, Post Media over the weekend about where the money eventually finds its way to. And you talked about this one individual, this, uh, 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 the one-eyed sheik that you describe, and, and other leaders of, of uh, uh, criminal organizations. So who's doing the tracking here? Well, a lot of it's done by Interpol, Homeland Security in the States, the RCMP here, um, <clears throat> Health Canada to a certain degree, um, and uh, the U.S. Bureau, uh, the ATF in the States, for example. Uh, it, it does, uh, follows the path of this. Uh, it estimated, like, for example, over a five-year period, groups affiliated with the Rio IRA raised $100 million from contraband tobacco. It's a lot of money. That certainly is. Uh, and uh, th- that, would, of course, uh, it's interesting you would raise the issue of the IRA because, of course, they always raised more money here in North America than they ever did, especially in Ireland or anywhere else in the world, for that matter. Yeah, but the real IRA is a, is a different band of bandits. Uh, the, the IRA that we're talking about, you're talking about, is kind of uh, gone, gone quiet. Yes, the yes. real IRA is still involved. That's what they call themselves, the real IRA. Uh, <clears throat> and they're, um, they're, they're pretty heavy duty. I mean, I, I was in, based in Europe uh, during the, the 20th anniversary of the Irish Troubles and spent a lot of time in Belfast. And uh, it, was, it was some pretty ugly stuff going on at that time. But nothing compared to uh, what the real IRA's got up up its sleeve. Uh, so it, it, it's it's uh, it's disturbing. So what's the remedy here in, in terms of uh, the the whole matter of because you talk about uh, if you're caught with contraband cigarettes, it's it's not treated like uh, if you had the same quantity of cocaine or other uh, forbidden narcotics uh, and you might receive a fine, it's highly unlikely you would receive any jail time. So why the, why the soft glove treatment by the feds? 
Well, the government and, and the police are scared stiff of going on to reserve to bring law and order back. Okay. Um, they, they, they've had their experience at Oka, oh, sure. Caledonia, mm-hmm. Ipawash, and places like this, and, and, and uh, they know what's going on. I mean, the, the cannabis, uh, when the cannabis law was brought, made, made legal, uh, the, the reserve, even before they, th- that happened, the reserves were, had their own dispensaries going. Mm-hmm, sure. And I mentioned to you, you can buy stuff at a, at a reserve dispensary that you cannot yet legally buy. Uh, in uh, under our cannabis law, mm-hmm. I mean, there's edibles, lots of them for sale. You can buy a you know whole plant. You can buy uh, uh, oils and and raw bud. So what then? What what sort of pressure is that? Is it possible, Mark, to bring public pressure to bear, especially as more and more of this story begins to unravel about following the money and finding out where the money ends up in the hands of some pretty awful people funding some pretty negative uh, activities? Uh, how much push public pressure is necessary to get the government of Canada to actually? develop a backbone on this. Yeah, well, I've been writing about this for a long time, and I'm getting more and more uh, pissed off with the government. Uh, the public the public doesn't really care. Uh, they see, they blame big tobacco and the governments for putting such high taxes on cigarettes right. that they have to resort. And they, they see it as a harmless, victimless crime. Yeah. Like, you know, and, and their image is... Uh, the old guy in the in the old folks' home, you know, going out and bringing back fifty cartons of cigarettes to sell cheaply to his friends at the in the old folks' home. Sure, they don't see anything wrong with that. Well, mm-hmm. you know, it, either do I really, but it's just the tip of the of the real thing uh, because it's it's huge money, and like um, the, the government's got to grow a pair. So do the police, and I don't see that happening. The police are, or the public that you want to get all riled up. Uh, are not. Now, if someone blew up half of Toronto uh, on money raised from contraband cigarettes, that would be a different story. But that's not happening. And when you can go, like I said, when you can buy a a kilo of hashish online and have it delivered to your door by Canada, Canada Post, there's something wrong with both the law enforcement and the government controls. All right, final question for you. We need to take a break, and then I want to change the topic. But, but just before we go to the break, do, do, to the best of your knowledge, and you've done a ton of homework because this is far from the first time you've written about this, but does the money stay mostly in Canada, or does the bulk of it leave the country fairly quickly? It's, it's about 50-50. I mean, you've got some serious organized crimes involved, including the Hells Angels. Uh, and so that money will stay and be used to purchase guns, purchase drugs, uh, and, and and that sort of thing. Uh, the cigarettes that are smuggled across into New York State uh, are apt to go anywhere because you lose track of them there. Sure. But, but ATF, you know, when he talks about, you know, uh, $100 million raised through cigarettes going to the real IRA, that's serious money, and a lot of those, and the majority of those cigarettes uh, would be coming from Canada. Uh, Bob, welcome. What are you? Uh, what are your thoughts uh, about uh, Mr. Bonakowski's revelations today? 
Well, first of all, I'd like to congratulate you for uh, having Mark on air. This is probably the most important guest you'll have on all week. Uh, I think it's time that the citizens of Canada, British Columbia, took back our lives and we made the police and the federal liberal government accountable for all of these things that are costing us so much, not only in, in money, uh, but in uh, treasure, as they say, when people lose their lives. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, Mark should be on CKNW every week. And I challenge the other hosts to bring him on and speak up. And let's hold the politicians' feet to, as Prime Minister Justin would say, to the uh, fire. It's a uh, time we did something about uh, All right, gotcha, Rob. Mark, he's a fan, as am yeah, I. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, if it, what he said, too, and I, I, I'm talking about the contraband tobacco and all what it, what it does to go funding, but at the same, uh, same time, the federal and provincial governments uh, lose hundreds of millions every year in lost tax revenues yes. as, as a result of this. You bet. Because uh, when you buy a pack of smokes at a reserve, you're not paying any taxes. Uh, and uh, when, they're, when they're purchased, there's no taxes paid. So uh, it's a lot of tax revenues lost. And, and curiously, I, I phoned the new uh, uh, finance minister in Ontario, Doug, uh, at uh, Phillips' office, and uh, to talk to their policy guy, and they did not have a tobacco strategy. Interesting. Contraband tobacco strategy. Or, and and, and uh, he says the, guy, the, the, the policy guy for his office said it's something he has to work on. And uh, I says, well, you've got, it's, it's really complicated, so you better get to work now and go 24-7 on it. That's right. Michael in Vancouver, jump in here. Well, we've got a second or two left with uh, Mark. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, hello. Hello? Yes, sir, go ahead. Hello, Sterling. Hello. Um, I, I live in the downtown east side, and you don't buy them on the reserve. You buy them on the street, and they're $3 a pack. I'm on disability. I can't afford to go into a store and pay 15 or $16 for a pack. Right. You don't buy them on the reserve. You buy them at Pigeon Park. You know what I mean? I do know well, what you in, mean. In, in, in BC, yes. But yes. I'm talking about Ontario reserves when we're talking about that. There's a lot of illegal cigarettes, especially uh, uh, phony Chinese cigarettes being sold in, in sort of bodega style in the Vancouver area. Mm-hmm. But you can also, um, and it's become a, a, a curse as well. Interesting stuff. But you can see why at three bucks a pack, there's no shortage of customers. That's, a, that's, that's the key. And that's why most uh, people don't see any fault with it, like your, your last caller. Mark, I mean, he, he's, on, he's on fixed income. He can't afford $15 for a package, but he can get them, you know, around the corner for $3. Absolutely. Mark, Who, who's going to blame him? No one. I have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Unfortunately, I'm delighted to get you back on CKNW, my friend. It's been a bit of a chore, and you've had some medical issues. Delighted that you're up to it, and count on some more uh, uh, requests from this end. 
Thanks very much, Charlie. Mark Bonacoski on the Simi Sarah Show on BC government's union construction deal is facing a court challenge that could last several days. The legal battle began in BC Supreme Court this morning as a coalition of the province's largest construction associations and unions challenges the BC NDP government's deal with select unions for building publicly funded infrastructure. The claim, uh, the, the nub of the lawsuit, is that it violates workers' constitutional rights. Here to talk a little bit more about the deal and the lawsuit is the president of the Progressive Contractors Association of Canada. Paul DeYoung is on the line. Mr. DeYoung, Paul, welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. Uh, Paul, tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the how workers' constitutional rights are somehow or another violated by mm-hmm. a sweetheart deal between a provincial government and its union supporters. So just by way of context, Sterling, the, the, the BC Community Benefit Agreement is really a matter of adding insult to injury. The, the injury or the insult is that contractors are not able to compete properly, uh, that they are not able to innovate in terms of how they manage their workforce and uh, interact with the workforce. And as a result, BC uh, taxpayers are paying more for infrastructure projects. But the, the insult is that not only are there those negative attributes, but also the workers themselves are at a tremendous disadvantage. Across BC, there are about 250,000 construction workers. About 85% of those workers are either non-union or belong to alternative or progressive unions like CLAC. All those workers, if they choose to work under a community benefit agreement project, have to set aside their prior choices to either be a non-union worker or a, a member of the CLAC union and become a member of the building trades union. And that's a, that's a violation of the charter. It is. Uh, in what way? Uh, given that ultimately the adult worker in this choice exercises his or her freedom of choice and moves one direction or the other. Right. Well, so there's a number of problems that arise. First of all, the Charter uh, sets, a, sets forth the right of Canadians to either join organizations or not join organizations uh-huh. based on their free choice. They can't be forced to join. This, this is not just for unions, it's for any voluntary uh, group that may exist. And so that's a fundamental right of Canadians to be free of coercion. So this agreement uh, forces workers within 30 days of being employed in a CBA to join one of the respective building trade unions. Uh, now, the choice, the, the argument could be made, well, the worker doesn't have to work in that project. Right. If you're, if you're a worker, just imagine a, a sort of a fictitious example where you've got a company that employs 50 people and has been employing roughly those same people for the last five or ten years. That's their place of work. They work for that employer, and they, they trust that employer and have arranged whether through a non-union arrangement or an alternative arrangement with CLAC, to uh, have their needs met, safe work conditions, uh, excellent remuneration, etc. So imagine the situation where that contractor, in order to put bread on the table for that work uh, community, bids on a, a project under a CBA, and now all the workers for that employer have to change their affiliation mm. to a building trade union. The contractor can no longer manage the workers in the manner to which they become accustomed. The workers themselves now have to join a union. They, they lose the benefits that they were accruing with their other union. And it's a very distorted, uh, a very dis- 
disjunctive way to manage labor relations in BC, and it's entirely unnecessary. All right, now let's. Uh, you know, when when you push comes to shove in a lot of these controversial issues, it is wise, and my experience has taught me over the years to, uh, as one course of action or investigation, Paul, follow the money. So how much money is at stake? For example, one of the projects that is likely to be uh, to have this unique arrangement enforced strictly is the replacement of the Patello Bridge. What sort of kind of funding are we talking about there, public dollars? Well, the project has been stipulated to cost $1.4 billion. And I can come back to that in a moment because that's a bit of an oddity. But they've, they've said the project will cost a certain dollar amount, which is perhaps reassuring to, to British Columbia taxpayers. However, the CBA, by the government's own admission, will cost an additional 7% uh, to run the programs or the, or the initiatives that they've laid, laid out. And so if you do the math on that, that's $100 million. And so instead of uh, $100 million going towards perhaps two high schools or an opioid uh, you know, pro, uh, program, this money is now being spent... Well, we're not really sure what it's being spent on. It's, it's supposed to be spent to, to increase opportunities for women in construction and Aboriginal peoples and more youth. But contractors do that anyway. Contractors are eager to always grow their workforce to be inclusive and diversive in that approach. And that can easily be set forth in commercial terms of an agreement. It doesn't require this additional spend. So under the uh, court hearing that's going on right now, will your lawyers, Paul DeYoung, uh, will they present the case as essentially this is an opportunity for the government of the day to reward its staunchest supporters with public funds? Well, that, that question lies in the background, but the technical legal argument is simply that workers are being asked or being com- compelled to set aside their free choice by entering into the CBA. So this is a charter challenge. It has a very narrow definition. Aha, uh-huh. okay. Uh, the, the, the opponents to our case are trying to remove this case to the Labor Relations Board, which has a more general sort of a definition of what's, uh, what's allowed and not allowed. And so this is going to be a tricky, a tricky matter. The, the government is trying to protect its uh, favorable uh, relationship with the, the VC building trade unions. They've, they've picked winners and losers in this matter. Yep. I think that's a, a, a very unfair way for governments who are supposed to be neutral to go about their business. Uh, the BC building trades, which themselves have a, an undeniable and, and a proud history, only represent 15% of this construction marketplace. And so the idea that the BC government is picking the building trades to be the sort of the uh, the, the winners of, of this uh, arrangement really doesn't have the ring of truth, and we're hoping that the uh, the, the the judge in this court case will uh, will agree with us. We shall follow it very closely, Paul DeYoung. Thanks very much for uh, presenting your side of the case here on the radio with us today. You're very welcome. Take care. You too. Progressive Contractors Association of Canada President Paul DeYoung on CKNW on the Simi Sarah Show. The Chinese stock market recorded their worst trading day in five years when the Shanghai Composite Index opened this morning and gave investors the opportunity to react to the coronavirus outbreak. Markets were down over 8% this morning, prompting concerns about how the coronavirus outbreak is affecting the economy. Chinese officials have confirmed there are now over 17,000 cases of the coronavirus in China and the Philippines have now recorded the first death of the coronavirus outside China. So how will this decline in the Chinese stock market affect 
well, every other market. Jeffrey Sandler is with us. Mr. Sandler is a portfolio strategist with Linton Wealth Management for Raymond James, and he's in studio with some details. Jeff, thanks for coming by. It's great to meet you. My pleasure. Thanks. So this, uh, an 8% plunge in the domestic markets in Shanghai this morning, the biggest drop in five years. You're in the business. What does that tell you? We have to be careful when we're talking about Shanghai or actually uh, any of the markets in China. And the, let me just give you the, the, the big picture. The, the Chinese government injected probably over $100 billion into their markets to stabilize them prior to opening them because right. of this news. And those markets trade on different fundamentals and for different reasons than the stock markets that you and I would typically be accustomed to talking about. New York Stock Exchange, Toronto. Mm-hmm. Even Europe. They trade at sometimes what are considered extremely lofty to almost impossible to, to uh, maintain earnings multiples. In other words, they're expensive. Okay. So an 8% move in a really expensive market, to me, is like should be expected on, on news like this, especially one that might chop a few points off of your gross domestic product because such a large portion of your uh, Working population may end up in you know in segregation or affected by the virus. Well, as so, I mentioned earlier, just just as a setup to your coming in a few minutes ago, fifty million people this morning or today are quarantined. They can't go out. They can't produce. They can't consume. They're locked up. But it's a big populated course, country, and anybody who can put a thousand bed hospital up in 10 days is to be admired. So it's a terrible situation. The coronavirus kills so far this you know the data that we know is it kills about uh, one out of ten SARS for instance killed th- uh, uh, nearly uh, three out of ten right and uh, the uh, 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 flu that goes around every year has killed much more people and uh, kills about one tenth of one percent of the population so, so so it's not three out of ten sorry it's three percent versus one percent right. for this virus versus one tenth of one percent for flu so in perspective if this outbreak becomes three times larger than it is now in terms of harming people, it will be on a scale with the SARS outbreak, which was a major global economic impact. Um, This one in particular is of concern to manufacturers who have operations and and, uh, including Canadian manufacturers and Canadian businesses, but the big ones would be Apple. And, and companies you know that size who have enormous amounts of infrastructure built up in China. Sure. So it's not a small thing. It's a big deal. However, it's considered that the Chinese are working very, very aggressively to, to contain it. Mm-hmm. And if you look, look at the stock market action today, it'll tell you we only had two days of the 1% or, or larger declines in New York, and today it's up. And what's remarkable, if I can just draw your attention to like an example of something that shouldn't be going up, if this is economically devastating or even psychologically devastating, um, companies like uh, Wynn Resorts or Las Vegas Sands. Mm -hmm. These are are U.S. companies that have most of their earnings coming out of Macau from Chinese, from wealthy Chinese. Mm -hmm. The the amount of money they make in Macau is three times what Las Vegas makes. So these are important huge economic centers for these international gaming companies, resorts companies, um, and then getting back to what we do with them, commodity trade. And yet, those companies, for instance, were up today. And I look at that and I say, okay, so one of two things is true. This is another international, serious, normal event, Mm -hmm. very different than a systemic problem. 
If you and I were here and you were asking me, well, uh, you know, UK just went through Brexit. I understand that, you know, banks are failing. That would be a run around the room, hands above the head, yelling type of situation right. or panic. This isn't, this is bad, but it, 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 the, the exact amount of economic fallout for us here in Vancouver remains to be seen. So two questions out of that. One, why did the government of China prop up its economy with an infusion of $100 billion, American? Uh, and, well, let's start with that. Let's, 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 why, why did they feel it necessary to do that? Not, not unusual for that government to intervene in its, oh, own, in its okay. own capital markets. And it can be for any number of reasons. I don't really trust the, <laughs> I mean, they're very important markets. They're very large markets. They're very heavily traded, and there's a lot of wealth managed in the Chinese markets. But they're completely, the, the rules are have been, in my experience, very different from what, you know, I can hardly keep up to the regulations in Toronto, New York, let alone the very strange things that can happen in some of the emerging market uh, markets. Okay. That government is, that, that's not an open economy. So if they say so just the market, another in, in interventionist it, move, it would be like tomorrow someone from Ottawa holds a news conference and says we've decided that the TSX should be five percent higher. It would be that stunning to you and I, like, like the government would come in and just say we're just going to move it five percent. Well, that's not that ridiculous in China, like where they say something's wrong, we're going to fix it, and they and, inter they, and they intervene. Yes. Uh, interesting. So the people that uh, have done something, sold, sell, sold a lot of stock by the things, because if it's off almost 9%, uh, are those people just saying their tolerance, their risk tolerance has, has hit the wall, I'm out. Cash me out. I'll come back when everything's better. Short-term price moves are very deceptive. They can be Triggered by news headlines, like serious ones, coronavirus or war or like an earthquake, nuclear reactor, short-term, large news events. And then the reaction to them will be compounded by the price moves themselves. So whether it's 9% or 9 tenths of 1%, it all depends on how quickly it goes from A to B. Right. So it's not so much the size, but the velocity. How quickly does it go there? Selling begets selling. So a lot of the people who sold when the market was down 2%, then 3 then 4 uh, triggered people who didn't sell until it was down 5 6 or 7 If you understand, mm -hmm. it creates a snowball. So the market tends to overextend in both directions. We've been on a, on a, on a tear going due north mm -hmm. in, the, in the North American market since the new year. And actually, the last year, it's about a 20% S&P 500 move for 52 weeks. Coronavirus could... Easily, you know, because of the news, shave something off of that. But the coronavirus isn't the reason North American markets necessarily would be correcting. They're tired. They've been going up almost relentlessly for months and months and months. The the low interest rate, low um, low inflation, low unemployment, same old grinding economy that I've been on radio talking to people about for for now. 12 years going back to the 08 collapse right. is still there exactly the way it was a decade ago. So there's no real reason to derail you know, on a large scale with what's happening. But right it now doesn't sound that you're, you're willing to let the pendulum swing too far to the other extreme and to go to that recession conversation that a lot of people were having. You'll notice before the end of the year and not so much since the new year began. Yeah, the, the, again, it's important that you stay focused. I know this sounds like, like corporate rhetoric, but if you don't look long term and don't look at, you know, if you've got kids who buy Apple products, let's say, mm -hmm. okay, what are the chances they will never buy an Apple product again? 
slim and none. Right. So you can't get too crazy bearish on Apple, even though their manufacturing gets hurt, for instance, in, in a coronavirus outbreak or for any other reason. They sure. get caught up in a tax thing. They, you know, run headfirst into, into some kind of political story or or any of the other big names that are constantly in the news, including Canadian ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a Canadian bank right now, uh, one of them has put out a report saying we should be very, very optimistic about where things are going to be in a year, not not crying about things, despite the coronavirus. And, and I'm not in total disagreement with that. Okay, so, uh, and, and in your personal experience uh, practicing uh, with uh, Linton Wealth Management and Raymond James, you have clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are, are more antsy than others, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Uh, have you been hearing from any yet in the wake of this, uh, particularly today? We're pretty pro, n- no, we're pretty proactive okay. uh, in terms of getting out in front of these things. And they know from talking to me through these incidents before exactly what I'm probably going to say and, and what, we're, what we're focused on. So, uh, I mean, that's your job. Uh, you're, not, you know, you're not paid to watch markets go up. You're paid to help people when things aren't going so well or right. when they're scary. So you have, to be, uh, you have to be out in front of these things. There's not nothing going on. It's just that we're not going to knee-jerk react to these types of situations in terms of moving a lot of money around because it's not necessary. Interesting. There's no, nothing to indicate right now that we should be. Yeah, just, uh, and we've only got a minute here, uh, Jeff, but just to further to your comments about um, the gain of last year, uh, 2019 was a fantastic year mm-hmm. to be invested. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2020, they're predicting modest growth this year, more of same next year, a little, perhaps a better year next year. Not flat for 2020, but uh, what one point five one point six percent growth rate is that uh, is that enough to keep the engine purring smoothly, or are you envisioning some kind of correction this year? Uh, corrections are normal, and you get one every eighteen months going back a hundred years so you 're going to get one uh, and it 'll be for whatever reason uh, coronavirus type of news usually won 't set off a major correction it 'll be oh. something else okay uh, so you 're going to get something between uh, you know a four and a half to ten percent move over the next year it, it, it happens. Uh, if you ask me, would I be out of the market anticipating that and ready to react to it? No. I, 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 it's, just, it's just there, and I just invest accordingly. And a final question. If I'm investing in Canadian stocks, mm-hmm. and I'm a natural resources fan, and knowing that the coronavirus is going to affect the demand for natural resources from Canada, would I be uh, wise to hold on to that stock or maybe uh, let some of it go? Chances are you don't own a lot of it right now because the sector's been beating you senseless for the last several years. And especially if you're in Alberta, you just about had enough of this news. True. But I would be looking at the sector for those companies that are outstanding and are really being beaten up. Okay. And I would try to, you know, maybe pick off one or two that, that I find of interest. All right. So remember when prices go down, there are bargains to be had. That's what if Warren you, Buffett if says. If you have the nerves of steel to, to stay in the fray. Yeah. Jeff Sandler, thanks very much for coming in. It's great to meet you, and we do appreciate some calm words of advice. You're welcome. It's uh, Jeff Sandler, by the way, is a portfolio strategist with Linton Wealth Management and Raymond James. In studio with me is a woman I've interviewed on the radio many times here on CKNW, a well-known Vancouver criminal defense lawyer with the Acumen Law Group. Always a pleasure to welcome Kyla Lee back to the airwaves of CKNW. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you with us here. And I was explaining to our listeners earlier, we were going to talk to you today about these uh, pullovers, these breathalyzers, these random, completely random breathalyzer tests that are all of a sudden happening randomly and frequently in the city of Calgary. Mm-hmm. And the whole, the whole point was, if they were to randomly and frequently begin in Vancouver, what do you do? 
So we go to the website, we pull up the info, we contact Kyla, and, 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 and she agrees. You agreed to come on the show. Thank you. And then we poked around the website a little bit more and found your blog. This week is uh, Eating Disorder Awareness Week in British Columbia. And uh, you are at kylalee.ca, your own personal website where you blog about any number of things, got real personal uh, beginning today with it's Eating Disorder Awareness Week and I am coming out. Tell us your story, please. Um, Well, I I struggled for uh, about 15 years with a very bad case of anorexia. And um, I'm now seven years in recovery uh, this month. So it's a kind of an Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. So uh, so, uh, back us up. When did did you even become aware of the fact that your eating habits weren't particularly normal, mainstream? I started to realize I probably had some type of a problem around grade 10. Um, My eating had always been abnormal. And I thought that it was just sort of like a peculiar quirk, like I was just different. Mm -hmm. And um, around grade 10, I experienced a bunch of stress and I just started like giving away my food to my classmates, to my teachers. And uh, I lost a lot of weight very rapidly and people were starting to go, this isn't normal. Mm -hmm. And we think something might be wrong here. So that it was the stress in your uh, grade 10 life that sort of triggered all of this uh, process of denial and and, and all. So what was, were there stressors at school? I mean, uh, the kind of social stuff that still goes on amongst grade 10 students? Oh, yeah. The type of social stuff that many, many high school students face, which is just sort of bullying and and feeling ostracized and not really fitting in. But it just kind of came to a head at that point in time. And so your reaction to all of this external pressure was to stop eating. Yes. It it was sort of a, a weird reaction where if I stopped eating, I stopped feeling as upset about things. It was a way to kind of control my emotions through controlling my food. Interesting. So uh, if this starts and you're in grade 10, how long was it that you were able to, because you, you, you were being quirky and just you and all of that young woman stuff and you know, had developing your style and all, you can, you can get away with a lot. You can mm-hmm. cover things up when you're young and, 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 and fast. So yeah. how long did it take people like your parents and, and your closest circle of friends to pick up on the fact that this is really not, it's going sideways here? You know, I think my parents noticed something was going on a lot sooner than they ever admitted, but they were really lost. They didn't know what to do. There were, where we grew up, there were no resources mm-hmm. for dealing with somebody like me. It was never something that they'd had any experience with. And so they kind of just tried to encourage me to eat. And the way eating disorders work is they help you find creative ways to figure out how not to eat. So uh-huh. everything they came up with, I would find a way around. Interesting. So were you at the point ever so ill because you were malnourished that you couldn't function? You couldn't go to school? No, I never got so ill that I couldn't function or go to school. Um, But I did get eventually, years and years later, so ill and so thin that I couldn't function emotionally. The the sort of trick of not eating and covering up my emotions stopped working. My body had eaten all of its fat, and now I was an emotional wreck where the littlest thing would set me off, Mm. and I'd be crying, and I'd be inconsolable, and I didn't know what was going wrong, and it was just my body was in a sheer state of starvation. Interesting stuff. So who was there? Where did you 
you get your first clue that, I mean, you were a highly organized person. I know you well enough to say that <laughs> on the public airwaves. So and you, you organized your life in, around not eating, mm-hmm. but showing the world that you were still kind of, you know, normally consuming food that you never ate. So how did you prioritize your food? How did you not die? Did you eat actually nutritious things and, and put everything else to the side? No, no. In fact, the, some of the things that I eliminated first in my diet were nutritious things. At first, I eliminated meat, and then I eliminated dairy, and then I eliminated carbs, and I eliminated sugar. And so I was basically sustaining on anything that started with the letter P, which was ultimately what I got down to. I would only eat food if it was the letter P, and it wasn't the color brown, and it wasn't the color orange. Oh, my. And again, there's no rationale behind no. that. No, absolutely not. It was completely irrational. But at, once you're at that point of, of starvation, your body will take whatever nutrients it can get mm-hmm. from whatever source it can get them from. Um, it's a, something your body does called homeostasis, where it will suck nutrients out of other your organs. It will suck nutrients from where it needs them to keep feeding your brain just to keep your heart pumping, to keep your lungs breathing, and to keep you going. It's sort of your onboard involuntary survival system, isn't it? It is. Interesting. So how, how did you... Uh, get to the point, Carla, where, because you did this all very quietly. I mean, people were noticing, people, your, your friends, and eventually your mom and dad started to say something about it, but were you re- just resisting any attempts by kind or general attempts from any interference at all? I was really resistant, and I, I didn't recognize it at the time. At the time, I did go to some programs. I did one through St. Paul's where I did a, uh, it was a readiness program for an inpatient process, and when it got time to go to their inpatient process, I said, you know what, this isn't going to work for me. It's it's not working out. Uh, I don't think that this is the right program for me. Now I recognize that was me going, I'm not ready to give up my eating disorder. And ah. it wasn't until Paul Doroshenko, my, my colleague, um, recognized and I confided in him about my situation that he said, look, we got to get you help. And he found a place that I was willing to go to, paid for it, put me on a plane and sent me there all you, within a week. You went off to Brandon, Manitoba, did, as, as yeah. you say. In, in your, in a, it's a Kyla Lee, Kyla, K-Y-L-A, KylaLee.ca, friends. It's uh, Kyla's personal website. Go to the blog section and it's today's. Uh, I spent almost 15 years of my life wrestling with anorexia nervosa this month marks seven years from when I finally entered my journey with recovery. Was the journey, did the journey begin on that plane ride to Manitoba, to that uh, facility where you spent a couple of weeks? It spent, uh, it began about a week before then. Um, basically, Paul made me sign a contract that I had to eat a certain number of calories every day or I couldn't keep my job. Oh, he yeah. got you on the legalities, <laughs> he didn't did, he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't breach a contract. Well, and there you and you wouldn't either. That's 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 very interesting. So, by that time, you he he fooled you into signing a contract and taking. But you knew by then you were that many years mm-hmm. along into this problem. Uh, and by then, you would also have recognized how many people die from eating disorders. When did that start to connect? Uh, that started around uh, maybe a year or so before then. And it's about 20% of people with an eating disorder will die yeah. uh, as a result of it. Um, and as I got worse and worse over that year, I kept thinking, you know, I'm getting closer to being in this 20% number. Mm-hmm. Were you feeling suicidal at all? Was was any of this, I mean, I, it started out as stress from bullying and social pressure, but did it ever drive you to the point where well, I'm basically going to starve myself to death? This will be now be my, my game plan. 
I think that that was probably subconsciously what I was trying to do, but I don't think I was ever consciously thinking, oh, I'm going to kill myself by right. just not eating. Right. It's a very inefficient way to do it. It certainly <laughs> is. So throughout all of this process, uh, hills and valleys, good days, bad days, mm-hmm. but you were, you were in this on this strange odyssey for how many years? 15? 15, yeah. So at what point along that 15-year journey did you recognize before you uh, had to sign the contract and go off, when did you realize that this is, I could die? Around the middle of of my sort of undergraduate years, I started becoming involved in online discussion forums for people with eating disorders. This is in law school too, isn't it? It was it was throughout law school yeah. and in my undergraduate. And there were people that were in the discussion forums that I got to know, um, never knew them in person. Just online chat knew, groups, eh? Yeah, knew them online and they would die. Wow. Like I lost my friends. The same thing I have. So that sort of started to bring it home and made me think about recovery, but it still took years and years before I was ready to actually, you know, put both feet in the water. Right. But still, what a what a jolt it must have been to, even though you didn't actually know the person eye to eye, you had developed a rapport with an individual online, and all of a sudden that person's gone from the same issue that you were struggling with together. It was, it was like losing somebody that I'd known for years because we shared things that were so intimate um, that we no, couldn't talk about with anybody else because we had nobody in our lives who really understood what we were going through. And, and is, was that part of the problem all the way along, even though well-intentioned relatives and moms and dads, and they all came to you and said, we, we, we know something's going on and it's probably not very much fun. What can we do to help? And saying nice things, but not really getting through to you. Well, exactly. You know, it's, it's hard to, unless you've been through it, to identify how to communicate to somebody that you know they have a problem and that you're there to support them and to put those structures in place that allow them to take advantage of that opportunity. Since, sorry, since you've, since you've been... Uh, I, I don't want to say sober because that's not the right word, but you know what I mean. You, since you've become an eater mm-hmm. again, seven years back uh, with the rest of us, have you, uh, as just as a person, have gone back to any of those chat forums that you used to go to and, and being the voice of experience or mentoring or anything of that? I haven't. I've stayed away from them because I don't want to be sucked back into uh-huh. any of that. You know, and those voices are still in my head. I still hear a voice that says, you know, don't eat, skip your dinner. This will be better for you if you just don't eat. And I've just had to learn to tell it to shut up and go away. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to a place that's going to feed it and to allow it to take over me again. One of the things that you did putting yourself through school, you were able to do some modeling work. Now, as a young woman who is thin, uh, attractive for people in that industry, so it really didn't impair your ability to look after yourself financially, did it? No. And in fact, being in the modeling industry kind of encouraged Sure. I was always surrounded by people who were thinner than me, so I never felt like I was too thin. Interesting. And of course, were, they, were a lot of those people, those girls that we were working with, in the same kind of denial mode that you were? Or, oh, yeah. Definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. So no surprises then. No, it was. It, it's not surprising at all. Um, and I mean, I think you can tell when you look at models, a lot of them do really struggle. A lot of them are also prepubescent. And it's hard to try and compete with people whose bodies haven't gone through puberty. And so who haven't formed, you know, hips like adult women have sure. and, and shoulders like adult women have. And you're competing with that. Yeah, exactly. So how are you feeling now? And, and it's interesting that you would uh, you talk about the little voice that still hasn't shut the hell up even after seven years. And is that likely to be with you for the rest? Yes, it's going to be there forever. And it's just I just have to, you know, tell it to 
go somewhere. I won't say those words on the radio, though. Oh, oh, darn, darn sporting of you. But really, so that's a tendency that you know you, you carry that you're always going to have to deal with. Yes, it's just like anybody who struggles with addiction or any mental health issue. It's a lifelong journey with recovery, and it's going to be something that, you know, even when I'm uh, in my dying days, I'm still going to be struggling with. Uh, Attorney Kyla Lee in studio, uh, not talking the law today, talking about a blog she has uh, written at kylalee.ca about her uh, life experience with an eating disorder. And as promised, we are uh, delighted to welcome Deborah Grimm to the program. Ms. Grimm is one of the founders of the Looking Glass Foundation for Eating Disorders, a caring community of prevention and support for people struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating of any types. Deborah, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us. You listened to Kyla's story, very touching story. I'm sure you've heard this. I'm sure you've heard this several times uh, lately. Uh, I've heard this for many, many years. I've been a part of the uh, the movement uh, to improve care for almost 20 years. And so Kyla's story um, is extremely tender and close to my heart. Indeed. Uh, how long has the Looking Glass Foundation been up and running here in Vancouver, Deborah? Well, we began as Three Moms at a Kitchen Table okay. in the late 90s. And in 2002, we uh, became official. So that's the date I'm going to use. And okay. we launched ourselves as a... Uh, uh, we came together to be community for each other and to reach out and create community and augment the programs that were already ongoing. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there weren't that many. Um, yeah. So we decided to uh, put our hands and feet to change. What's the difference between an eating disorder or disordered eating? I, it sounds semantics, but you wrote that on your website for a reason. We did. Um, often um, people, um, I want to say they get alarmed as they should, but there are certain things. Uh, disordered eating often comes before eating disorders, but not necessarily. And a disordered eating can be uh, a, a, a curious way of managing your food. What happens is often that curious way um, it, it sort of accelerates and becomes eating disordered, which, as we've heard with Kayla's story, can take you down a very big rabbit hole. Yeah, and, and, okay. And it's just eating foods that only begin with the letter P. That's yeah. a strange management technique that uh, sounds very very in line with what uh, the, the, the disordered eating is all about. So the reason you're with us, uh, Deborah, for just a few moments more is simply to let people listening to Kyla's story and recognizing that there are still eating disorder realities in our midst is that, that we also have resources in our midst, unlike when Kyla was a kid going Going through this pretty much by herself, you have the Looking Glass Foundation for Eating Disorders right here in Vancouver. We we came together, as I say, to, to augment things, and our biggest goal was to create the first residential center for youth with eating disorders, which took us 10 years to do, um, but we finally did it. Uh, we started on Galliano Island, and, uh, and then with PHSA support, we moved to Vancouver, uh, are now located on Angus Drive. And work that we run that in collaboration. PHSA runs it, and they work with us in tandem. Looking Glass supports enhancement programs. We raise funds to create enhancement programs and support for the for the residents. As well, along the way, we created other um, programs. We have a, a hand in hand program that is literally a program where we have trained volunteers that are overseen by a therapist. That um, we set it up such that you are trained, then you meet with, you are matched, and you meet 
once a week, face-to-face. The, kind, the kind of people Kyla didn't have available. I asked her specifically about that earlier on, and there's exactly. the sorts of resources simply weren't there. Deborah, I'm afraid I'm out of time, but I am grateful for yours. Uh, our hats are off to you, especially on this particular week. Uh, it's going to be a busy one for you, I hope. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it will be. And Kyla, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this story. This is not the typical conversation we've had uh, since you and I have met a couple of years ago, but it's deeply appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Deborah? Thank you. Our, our pleasure entirely.